the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. As I mentioned last week, our schools in our town uh, are kind of doing two different things right now. You know, we have a school district where my younger two kids are in, the elementary and junior high, and then you have the high school school district. Uh, that my older daughter is in and the high school school district had their very contentious meeting last night and it came out that they are going to go mask optional, but not until February 28th. So not for two weeks. They're going to do it in two weeks. Whereas my kids in the junior high, uh, they went mask optional beginning yesterday. Wow. And, okay. uh, it was a big switch. So I've got, I want to tell you about their experience and something one of my kids said, but before I do that, uh, before I do that, where are your schools at with your kids or is it just kind of status quo right now? Right now it's status quo and we haven't really even received any, um, any, you know, uh, communication about it. I'm guessing that communication is going to come very soon, especially now that school districts in the surrounding area are making decisions. Um, I, I did one of my kids, I said something like, I wonder if you guys will be mask optional soon. And one of my kids was like, not in West Chicago. <laughs> so I don't know. I was like, oh, interesting. I wonder what he, what he means by that. But we didn't really have time to unpack it. But so I don't know. I think we'll probably be behind the other schools, but I think the moment most of the schools are optional, like I, I doubt West Chicago school district is going to like, be like, no, we're still doing masks. I think they'll go with the flow. But I, you know, the the union, the teachers union strong here. So I, we'll see. It's going to be interesting. Okay. I want to hear about your kids though. All right. So my, my two younger ones went to school mask optional and I, you noticed it right at drop off. Okay. At drop off, all of a sudden you see these kids all getting out of their cars and it, it honestly, Aubrey felt different because all the kids are getting out of their cars with no masks on. Yeah, and, I bet. And you mentioned the teachers union. Most of the teachers who are the outside kind of doing stuff now they're outside. We're not wearing masks either. And so you're like, wow, this is different. And so after school, I asked my kids, I'm like, what was it like? And, um, my daughter specifically said, she said, uh, it was really uh, barely anyone wore masks is what she said, including this was interesting, including the teachers. Very few of their teachers did. Mm. Uh, but here's what she said. She said it was really strange. And then she said it was uh, what, what was her exact phrase? She said it felt like normal again. And her next phrase was. And that was really weird. Interesting. And I was like, this is fascinating. She described it as normal and then really weird. And we talked a lot about it just last night. Tell me about your experience. Yeah. And she's like, even some of my good friends or, or some of the people I've been in school with for a long time, it was, uh, she said, it was strange to see their entire face. She's like, I actually, for, I said, did some kids look different to you than what you pictured they would look like? And she said it was totally how it was. Like there's these kids. She hasn't seen their face in two years. And she's like her mind, you know, your mind kind of fills out what you think someone's going to look like. And yeah. now it was the first. It's amazing to think about that because for some of the kids, it was the first time she's really seen their whole face. 
And she's like, they looked a lot different than I thought they would. Isn't that strange? Yes, that is so that is so bizarre. It, I mean, it is. It's it, okay. This is maybe a good metaphor, maybe not. But I don't. Did you ever have braces, Brian? I did not, but I know okay. what you're talking about. No, I did so, not. Yeah. So I had braces for two years, sixth grade through eighth grade. Eighth grade, the first day I went to school without my braces, like. I felt so vulnerable. Like it was like all of a sudden, like, ah, I'm exposed. And of course I had these great, beautiful brace teeth. You know what I mean? But still it was like so awkward to be like, oh, here's my, here's my whole self. Like I didn't have that thing guarding my face anymore. And it's, <laughs> you know, not quite the same, but like they've been in school for two years two now years. with masks. So yes. that has to be incredibly wild and confusing and, and vulnerable and, Hopefully it doesn't take too much time to get used to it, but I'm actually glad. I'm glad for the communication, nonverbal communication, and just so they can see each other again. This is great, but I bet it is weird. Was it weird for them to walk out the door again this morning without masks? No, I think they'll quickly get reused to it, right? But this, it did strike me. Both of my younger kids started middle school in in Downers Grove where I live. It's just seventh and eighth grade. Okay. So that's middle school. They both started middle school in the pandemic. And so middle school, you know, you've got all these elementary schools coming together uh, into a school. So there is this whole collection of kids that they've literally never never spent time with without a mask on. Wow. And now it's this whole new deal. But yeah, my my son described it as the first day of school. Like it felt like that energy. I bet. uh, Wow. The the first day of school again. Um, But let's broaden this beyond schools. I've said very much so. I'm excited that my kids are not in masks right now. Yeah, you've been ready for this. Uh, And and I'm excited that the high school is moving towards it uh, as well. And this feels like where everyone's moving towards right now. Some less quickly, like your own school district or whatever. Right. Uh, But this is the kind of, Aubrey, we're moving back into quote unquote uh, some normalcy, at least as it comes to masks, yeah, right? Like at the end of yeah. February in Chicago, it's going to be no longer in restaurants and other places. What do you think is going to be the spectrum of feelings people are mm. going to have when masks start coming off more and more? Uh, kind of how what my dis- daughter described at the school. What do you think uh, people in general are going to feel as the masks become less and less? I mean, I think it's going to be really divided like most things have been. I think there's going to be a massive part of the population that's thrilled and excited and might even throw parties. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be people who are like, I will continue wearing a mask no matter what. And of course, everyone has the right to do that. Um, Or they're going to, they're going to actually be fighting against the school districts Mm -hmm. and fighting again, you know, so there's, I think there, but I think in general, those who are ready to take off masks are going to win the day, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we're waging war. Um, I, I will say one of my worries is like, man, we've had a good two years without like strep throat or the flu <laughs> so or like true. just the common cold and like, I, oh, great. That's all coming back now from the school. <laughs> so, it's so true. You know, you win some and you lose some. But I think in general, I, I would say, you know, because we've all, whether or not we've even realized it for the past two years, been sort of like, Oh, shoulders scrunched, holding our breath, right. dealing with the weight of this. This, I think in general, it's going to feel like, oh, maybe we're moving forward finally. And that's what we all want, right? Yeah. And, and I guess I would, I would close with this. I would remind people, uh, don't be a jerk about this. Like, uh, especially as Christ followers, this is another, a, a, another in the law, lo- in the endless line of opportunities that we have 
to to act differently than people, to show civility, to show grace, to show understanding, to show compassion, regardless of what side of the debate of the day you are on, right? This is an opportunity for us to mirror who Jesus is and how Jesus responds to people uh, instead of I'm right, I want my rights, all of this stuff. So mm-hmm. I would remind us of that. So a new day in a lot of schools, probably coming to your school soon. Uh, but a new day. Well, coming up next, John Siebling and Wayne Francis, they co-authored a book called God and Race, a guide for moving beyond black fists and white knuckles. They're going to join us to talk about that book next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Pastor John Siebling and Pastor Wayne Francis. They're the co-authors of a book called God and Race, a guide for moving beyond black fists and white knuckles. They're also the co-host of a podcast called Leadership in Black and White. John and Wayne, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Hey, we're excited to be with you. Yeah, really excited. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And we'd love for our audience to get to know you guys a little bit better first. But John, why don't we start with you? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. Well, I am uh, John Siebling, born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but uh, launched a church 25 years ago in Memphis, Tennessee. And in between that was a missionary for a few years in Nairobi, Kenya, Um you know, uh, married to my amazing wife. I feel like I'm on Wheel of Fortune. Married to my amazing <laughs> wife for 31 years and uh, two incredible kids. And um, yeah, we're just, you know, uh, happy with what God's doing in our life. Excited about the book. That's great. And Wayne, let me play the role of Pat Sajak if this is Wheel of Fortune. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience as well? Um, I'd like a vowel. Oh, oh wait. Let's start. <laughs> My name is Wayne Francis. I hail from New York City, New York, Bronx, born and raised, two daughters, a gorgeous wife. And I pastor the New York location of the Life Church, which is a multinational church now um, founded by our pastors, Pastor John and Leslie Siebling. And we're having a great time and it's extremely cold. Oh, we, we feel that. We feel that here in Chicago for sure, Wayne. Um, Wayne, let me ask you the first question. I, I love the title of the book, God and Race. And I guess I would just love to hear background on your relationship with one another and then what led you to write the book together. Yeah, for the listening audience, I'm the black person in the deal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Pastor John and I met uh, a couple years ago after speaking at a conference, and I was, interestingly enough, leading a very diverse church here. Um, for a long time, it was predominantly white. When black people came to church, they, everybody thought I was related to that person. Oh, it wow. was not the truth. It was great. And he was leading a very diverse church in Memphis, um, which is obviously the hotbed of civil rights. And when we first met, it was like, you know, he had me at hello. And um, <laughs> and it was amazing. But we started to have these conversations about what it looked like to lead uh, in diverse contexts. This is before the world exploded with a lot of the racial tensions of 2020. Obviously, they've been ensuing for a while. But we were just talking about leading in diverse contexts. And 
uh, in this conversation in New York City, we talked about black fists, which represent black power in the black community and so on. And um, about this kind of idea of some white people holding on to old paradigms, clenching mm. their fists to old paradigms. And our position was that both black people and white people needed to have an open hand uh, if we were going to move the conversation forward. Uh, it's powerful. And John, uh, before we talk about it, what it looks like on a church wide level, what's it look like for you personally through however many decades and years to have that open hand that Wayne's describing? What does this process look like in your own life? Well, I, I mean, it's it's interesting because we uh, grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is you know a very diverse environment. Then we were missionaries in, in East Africa, which, you know, we were the minority by by far. And so some of our deepest, richest relationships uh, stem from those years in, in living in Kenya and then moving into Memphis, where Memphis is 68 percent black in terms of its population. And so right from the beginning, starting our church 25 years ago, of course, coming out of Africa and, and into that setting. Um, and, you know, Wayne said he's the African-American. I'm the white guy. So in Memphis, you know, we started building a church that uh, we wanted to reflect the demographic of our city. So we we started, it was a little slow in the beginning, but we started to see some diversity. I think uh, the impact uh, is felt in relationships. So it's, you know, beginning relationships with people. It's having, uh, it's having relationships that go beyond just uh, touching base and seeing each other on, on Sunday morning, but it, it gets into your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So um, it's all about relationship. I think probably, and I, it's mentioned in the book several times, where I've learned the most is sitting across the table from a friend, hearing their story and embracing their perspective of life, which is um, a lot of times very different than my perspective. So mm-hmm. it is all about conversations. It's all about open heart. It's all about relationships. I mean, that, that's the essence of why we wrote the book is, we feel like the needle will move forward on some of the racial tension in our country when people can literally sit down and have conversations and, and build relationships, obviously with people that, that are different than you. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, I know that one of the things you guys do in the book is you answer, this is from your own language, the uncomfortable questions we're afraid to ask regarding ourselves, our families, our work and relationships and the church. And I love that you're willing just to even name that sometimes these questions can be really uncomfortable because I think people are even afraid to say that sometimes. So Wayne, what are some of the questions that you and John dive into in the book? Uh, we dive into uh, what do you even call a person of color? You know, sometimes mm. we're feeling like, are you black? Are you African-American? Should I say uh, a particular phrase that may, you know, trigger somebody? So we deal with that in the book. Um, questions that have to deal with um, what does it look like to not only, you know, have a diverse Sunday, but a diverse midweek? Is your life reflecting diversity in different ways? There's some challenging questions that also um, that, that, you know, do I have privilege? If you're a white person asking, am I a person that has privilege? It's a tough question, right? To kind of, um, and, and the more we tour with the book, the, the questions that arise are very, very hard to deal with um, because they, it feels like a landmine. We hopefully feel like the book is going to help people keep their limbs um, in the most proverbial sense um, to deal with these questions through relationship. 
That's great. That's great. And John, uh, as we mentioned, Aubrey and I are both pastors as well. And so uh, uh, pastors listening to this right now, or they have felt compelled over the last you know months or year to go, I, I want to grow as an individual, but also my church grow uh, in this way. What would you suggest other than reading the book? What's step one? How does a pastor even begin to move their church forward in this way if they haven't been doing well up until this point? Sure. I, I appreciate you've already Step one really is reading the book. So thank you for already saying You're that. Welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> obviously, we're promoting a book, but really we're promoting a mentality. And so sometimes to create the mentality, you have to start with reading and understanding personally to let things confront you personally. Number two, so that's one. I say number two is you need to find a friend. Okay. So mm. if you're, if you're pastoring a church and you are, um, you know, you're a white pastor and you have all white people in your church, you're going to have to go outside of your congregation. Ideally there, there would be one or two and you could befriend someone of color and, and take them to lunch and, um, and, you know, invite them to your house for dinner, start relationally and start really, really building a bridge to that person. And it's like, you know, you know, at your first lunch, you don't pull your notebook out and start asking the deepest, uh, you know, hardest questions. It's like, hey, just I just want to get to know you and, and I want you to get to know me. And I, I really want to build an, an honest, sincere relationship. And I would say, you know, you let that progress until you feel like you've learned some things. And then step three, you know, you start talking about it on 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 the weekend and on the platform. You know, I know guys that have started talking about it. They, they started with step three and that that's mm. a mistake. They haven't lived it. They don't understand it. They don't understand the complexity of it. And, um, you know, I mean, people can smell fake, right? If it's, yeah. if, it's if you're just getting up there uh, talking about this because this is the hot, relevant topic and it's all about, you know, you, you want you want the church to kind of move forward. Well, people will know that it has to come from a genuine place. And that's why it always has to start with relationship. And I would say step four would be once you have a deep defined relationship after many, you know, a, a year minimum. OK, <laughs> then maybe you can get on the stage with somebody of color and, and have a conversation with them um, and and demonstrate. So what Wayne and I have done is we have built a relationship. We have talked behind the scenes more than we have talked on the stage. Hmm. When we get on the stage together. When we write a book together, it's, it's, it's authentic. There's chemistry. There's a connection because we've built the relationship. So, and, and we have said all along our goal. And we, by the way, I just wanted to throw this plug out too. We have a small group curriculum that um, we've released a companion with the book for churches, for individuals, churches, Bible studies. But uh, we kind of feel like we want to create a movement of churches. We're believing for a thousand churches to use this curriculum. Um, so it, I said all that to say our hope has been to model Wayne and I to model what a conversation looks like and what a relationship can look like. So um, how about that? I gave you five steps. Love, Love it. it. Fantastic. Love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, this is a question that we ask a lot of pastors we have on. But I, I would love to hear from both of you on this, specifically just thinking about racial justice in the church right now. Are you hopeful for the church? And if so, what makes you hopeful? Um, Wayne, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm hopeful because I'm starting to see that the church is actually leading in the conversation instead of lagging. 
Hmm. And um, with the onset of more young leaders that ha- have grew up in diverse contexts, I am very hopeful that um, diversity will not be something that we see that's just uh, you know reserved for heaven. It's a requirement on earth, and we are seeing more people. Um, wanting to have this conversation. Um, and I think that a lot of churches are starting to embrace diversity or at least trying their best to get involved in it. So I'm very hopeful for where the church is going. In fact, there's some new statistics that are showing that more people of color are leading diverse churches. And that to me is very inspiring um, to see that um, it's just not in one context yeah. that we're seeing diversity, yeah. um, that actually people of color um, are leading more diverse congregations. That's a lot of fun to see. Mm. And John, how about you? Are you are you hopeful for the church going forward? One hundred percent. I think um, I'm hopeful. I think 2020 created a new framework. Yeah. And I think some people, let's be honest, some people retreated in 2020. Yeah. And they went back to homogeneous environments. They felt safer in an all white church, all black church. I saw it happen in our church. Um, but I also saw people press through the pain of 2020 and say, um, all right, we can't keep doing this because reaction, um, reaction doesn't do it. Every time there's a news story, every time there's a tragedy, just to react is not, is not going to do it. We have to be proactive. And so, yes, I, I am hopeful. I would just encourage any pastor that's listening, any church leader that's listening, it's worth it. It's worth pressing through the pain that comes with being misunderstood yeah. um, when it comes to, to, to racial harmony, it's worth it. It's it, like Wayne said, it's not just, it's not just what we're going to see in heaven. We're, we're practicing here on earth. We, we got to get mm. good at this. This is, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed three times in, in the book of John, that we would be one. And so it, it's worth it. It's hard work. It's um, it's heart work. Um, and, and yes, I am hopeful. And I, I, I pray every day for the church to, to move forward and, and, and see the value of this. Amen. Let me encourage everybody out there again, go get the book, God and Race, a guide for uh, moving beyond black fists and white knuckles. The authors are Pastor John Siebling and Pastor Wayne Francis. You can learn more about John and Wayne and their book at godandrace.com. Also check out their podcast at leadershipinblackandwhite.com. That's Leadership and Black in White. John and Wayne, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us today. A blast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It means a lot to us. Thank you. Absolutely. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Super Bowl betting is $7.6 billion. Okay, $7.6 billion dollars. And here is the question that they ask over at Christianity Today. Uh, The title of this is Super Bowl betting is a $7.6 billion problem fewer evangelicals care about. Mm. As society doubles down on online sports gambling, older activists see a chance to renew the Christian conscience around 
the practice. Hmm. So they go into kind of the history that especially in the 90s and before, like gambling was a big deal within yeah. the church. This yeah. was something that was talked about, right? You didn't play the lottery. You didn't right. go to casinos. Right. And not only didn't you do that, but churches were ones to stand up and be like, we're not, we're, we're going to speak out against it. We don't want a casino. We don't want this or that. But now they say here in, in Christianity Today, the Super Bowl Sunday, is the first big windfall in many states for online sports betting. Companies mm-hmm. like DraftKings and FanDuel have been running ads, the fantasy leagues, all of this stuff. Uh, and it ends up getting you to a projected, at this point it was projected, now it has happened, 31.4 million Americans will put down $7.6 billion on just the Super Bowl. So, Albert, it has brought up this conversation of betting. Okay. Yeah. Is it is it a problem? Uh, let me give you a couple more stats. It says few Christians see sports gambling as a problem. A 2016 survey from Lifeway Research found that only 36% of Christians thought sports betting was morally wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, pastors carry more reservations, with the majority telling Lifeway in 2019 that betting on sports is morally wrong. And three corners, quarters believing it should not be legal. Uh, so anyway, there we go. These are some of the things going on out there. Aubrey, what do you think? Is uh, is this something that as it becomes more and more commonplace that you think the church needs to be standing yeah, up against? So or uh, is it more like, I don't know, how we talk about alcohol these days? Like, you know what? Have wine, do this, but there's a point where alcohol is problematic. How do you, how do you kind of view the increased gambling in our, uh, the increased kind of mainstreaming of gambling in our culture? You know, this is, this is interesting to me because, and this maybe will show you my age and my upbringing, but I hear gambling and I'm like, no, you do mm. not gamble. Like, like, I, I mean, I have some friends who gamble and it, I'm like, what? How can you? Like, it almost, I, it's just in me being raised, That's I guess, a Southern Baptist. Like, that feels way more kind of scandalous than like even pornography in my mind, which I know that's wow. not I, that's not accurate. I'm kind of being like um a little bit facetious here, but I'm telling you that was my upbringing. So mm. like gambling being normalized, I still think of gambling as like that thing people do in secret and it's really, really bad. <laughs> so I'm going to be honest. I have not put a lot of nuance or thought to this. I, you know, I know, I, I think my, my perspective on gambling probably, I mean, it definitely comes from my upbringing. Right. But also, I would say, you know, the, the addictive nature of gambling, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the Proverbs does talk about like, um, not being greedy for unjust gain and gambling mm-hmm. feels like an act of unjust gain. And then of course that it feels wasteful because there's so much loss in gambling and, you know, the history of gambling too, I, I would say that we've done, you know, we did the, the first nations, the first peoples really wrong in America. And so, Oh, here's some casinos to help, like help justify what we did to them. There feels like there's some dark history in gambling. But again, I'm saying all this with honestly not a lot of thought. So I need a nuanced person to help me think through this, a wise person to help me think through this. But my instinct is like, no, 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 don't gamble. Yes, the church should talk more about it. But what do you hmm. think, Brian? Let me be that nuanced person please, for please. you. <laughs> I, need, I need it. I need it. Clearly. Uh, so if you go on my phone, I have a FanDuel account. I'm not gambling like during the week. It's yeah. simply because there are guys from church that I play fantasy football with. And 
everybody puts in $5 a week and this and that. And so I don't want to be hypocritical here and be like, gambling is, is a, is a huge sin that we okay. need to get against. Yeah. Here's where I kind of liken the nuance. And, and I don't know, I might talk myself okay. into Can some I, hypocrisy I, I here. Real quick, Cause there is a fantasy football league at my church too. I don't think I, that in my mind isn't gambling, but go ahead, go ahead. I mean, our, I don't know what they're doing. Ours, it's a weekly, it's a weekly deal and you put in five bucks and it's okay. all done. Okay. And, and, but the bigger deal is the legality of it all is making it that much easier. Right now, it used to be, like you said, in a dark alley with a bookie, right? <laughs> totally. Back in the seventies. Totally. Now it's on your cell phone and it's legal. Like you're right. just kind of doing this and it right. is dangerous because of that. They say here in the article that there was recently a study in Spain that showed a significant increase in quote, young pathological gamblers after the country legalized online gambling, adding that the immediacy and accessibility of online gambling made it quote, more addictive than any other type of game. Hmm. And, and I think that's where we need to speak of this. I think we need to speak of this. Like we speak of alcohol, like I don't think you or I would ever tell anybody to sip a drink of to to just have a sip of alcohol is is sinful. Absolutely. Right. 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 But we would tell people that there is a spectrum here when it comes to alcohol that starts to get into areas of addiction and danger and sin. Yeah. And that we have to be careful. I think we would say I would I would say the same thing about gambling, because while I don't believe gambling to be sinful, I do believe it to be highly addictive. Uh, Yes. And that many a person has lost their home. They've lost their marriage. I know people who have who've lost everything. I do, too. Yeah. Because they couldn't stop gambling, whether yeah. it was sports or the casinos or whatever yeah. else. So I do think we need to be honest. Like, I don't think we need to go back to the days where anything that has any danger or dark side to it, therefore, it must be thrown away altogether. Yeah. Right? Okay, Alcohol okay. for one. Okay. But I do think that we can't speak that just because now it's on commercials and now they're talking about it on regular, you know, sports shows or whatever else. That, that it's not dangerous. I do think we need to talk to the, to the danger of it and we need to, uh, help people understand that. So hopefully that provides a little bit of nuance because I yeah, don't think, helpful. I don't think churches, I don't think pastors should be getting up right now and being like gambling sinful. Okay. Like I don't think that's okay. true. Okay. Uh, now the lottery, I would like to have a whole nother, con- I think that's a different conversation because oh. I do believe that okay. the lottery preys on, on people who are poor. Um, I do believe that, but when it comes to just, you know, casinos, when it comes to sports gambling, I liken it a lot to, I do to alcohol, like, okay. Uh, moderation, uh, this and that, but that we have to recognize the dangers of it. How does that feel for nuance for you? I don't know. I'm still, I'm telling you, like we've been to a wedding in Vegas and I was afraid to like use the coin slides. Like I still, (laughs) like there's something in me that is like, Oh, so I, but I, it's helpful to hear your perspective, especially when you put it in lines of like a fantasy football league with friends at church. Mm-hmm. That to me feels different than like, I don't know why it feels different than betting on a game or gambling. Mm-hmm. Your, but I think you're right. Like that, that addictive nature of it is the part that we need to be like so, 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 so careful on. And, you know, maybe there's other things that I quote unquote gamble on that I'm like not <laughs> aware of, you know, like how I go to TJ Maxx and buy purses and shoes or whatever uh, stuff from pillows for my house. Is that, is there something anyway? It's this is helpful. Know. You're helping me, Brian. Yeah, I just the the takeaway is there are so many more people. I would say 
especially men uh, in your church, in your circle yeah. who are gambling yeah. and yeah. who are doing it. And I think we need to have honest conversations about that's right. Uh, you know, I don't think in and of itself it's sinful, but I do think it opens the door to live uh, to some things. We here, I'll end it this way. I've got friends in my lives uh, from past times whose lives have been altered because mm-hmm. of their inability to not yeah. gamble, like yeah. to stop gambling. Yeah. Uh, and it's wrecked their family. So interesting. It is not going away. It is only becoming more and more legal in our culture. Uh, and I think we need to wrestle with that. Well, coming up next, we're going to ask this simple but very difficult question to answer. How can we love difficult people? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. When we think about loving the people that, you know, are in our family, especially our spouses and our kiddos, it not always, but it can be a little bit easier to express love to them. I think when we when we consider the topic of love, one of the challenging things is how do we love difficult people? How yes. do we love people that are difficult to love? Let's just put it that way. And I, you know, every single one of us has somebody in our lives. Maybe you're that difficult person. But every single one of us has somebody that's like, oh, this person, I know I'm mm-hmm. supposed to love them. I want to love them, but it is really hard to love them. And I I was uh, over on Twitter just kind of, you know, going through things. And somebody posted a quote by Stephen Colbert. And this is interesting because we actually talked about Stephen Colbert last week. He shared his faith really publicly on the show, uh, his show. He said something else that people are tweeting Um about how we need to perceive people. And I thought this was interesting in light of the question, how can we love difficult people? So let me read it to you, Brian, and and let me know what you think. Okay. Stephen Colbert said, I think you have to make a choice to perceive Christ in the people around you and to Mm. love them without fear that anything will be taken from you in the gift that you give them of your own love. Mm. That's good. That's yep. good. I, 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 what I appreciate about him saying there, and who knew that Stephen Colbert was turning into a prophet, right? I mean, but, the dude is like all over the church world, the ministry world right now. It's awesome. What I, what I appreciate is looking for the best in people. He says, per, literally perceive Christ in the people yeah. around you. I, I, I might temper that and just say, look for the best in the people around you. Mm. Uh, look for, um, Right. Like we can all take really high views of ourselves and equally low views of other people. Yeah. And and that becomes really problematic. And so instead, I would say when you're dealing with difficult people, what are the good things about them? What Mm. what can you think about that puts them in a positive light? And I I think you almost jokingly made an important point. Uh, You are that difficult person in some other people's lives. (laughs) And none of us ever think we are, right? Like, it's like, no, you know what? I'm everybody loves me. (laughs) I'm the the sane voice at all times. I'm this. And then you start being like, wait, nope, maybe that's not true. Maybe I'm difficult for some people. And so 
I do think this, uh, how I perceive other people as I go into a conversation with them or as I think about them, mm-hmm. I think is all, is, is what matters. If you take negative views of people and you just think about what makes them difficult, then they're going to be difficult in your life. And, um, yeah, I, I appreciate what Stephen Colbert had to say here. Yeah, I think I appreciated him saying you have to make a choice to perceive Christ and the people around you. So I think especially when it comes to the difficult people, just to be able to like, I choose that I'm going to see Jesus in them. Right. And then uh, this part was interesting to me and to love them without fear that anything will be taken from you. Because I do think sometimes what we don't realize is when loving people who are difficult or loving people who are different than us, that sometimes we are afraid to love them because of fear that they're going to hurt us. Or it's just going to be like, oh, well, yeah, I knew who that conversation went. And so to to be able to love them without fear that, look, you're going to love them. That love can't be taken. Like it may mm. hurt. It may be painful. But that can't they, like they don't have that much power over you your love is the gift that they can't take away. There's something about that perspective that I was like, Oh wow. Stephen Colbert has hit the nail on the head. Um, it's, it's, yeah, that's a good perspective when it comes yeah. to loving, loving difficult people over at a website called askaboutmyfaith.com. They actually shared five truths about loving difficult people kind of in this similar vein. Mm. One of the things that they said is everyone is created in the image of God. Um, and because Jesus prioritized loving people who are difficult, rejected, or outcast, we need to love those people as well. Mm. And we can, um, when it's difficult, we can remember this, that they were created in the image of God, just as we were created in the image of God. And I think that goes back to what Stephen Colbert was saying. This is a way to perceive Jesus in them, perceive the image of God in them. Mm-hmm. That kind of helps you have a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um Another thing from this article, it says difficult people are loved by God and Jesus loves us without hesitation or condition. Again, we're the difficult people sometimes too, right? <laughs> so I, I do think it's important to not just remember, but like ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Okay, God, in the same way that you've loved me when I am difficult and obnoxious and I don't, I'm not who you want me to be. You love me so unconditionally. Help me to love this person in front yes. of me. I, I think that's like a huge kind of posture shift for us. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the verse that kind of describes the gospel so well, right? While we were yet sinners, mm. Christ died for us. Yeah. Like another way to think about it in this conversation is while we were difficult. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, good. That's good. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we, Philippians 2, we are to take the very posture of Christ, yeah. in the very same mindset of Christ in our relationships with one another. Mm. Like Jesus was not didn't come to earth and be like, all right, who are the perfect people like me who I can interact okay. with, who so aren't going to cause me problems, right? Who aren't going to cause me yeah. heartache. Yeah. Uh, and, and then – uh, the bigger step is Jesus never had to have that self-examination of going, and I'm also difficult for other people. <laughs> right. But we do, right? We like do. just going, okay, and I'm that person in other people's lives. Yeah. You know, where are my blind spots? Yeah. But you know what? Being a part of a church, being leading a church is often dealing with uh, people that can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realize that I can be that in other people's so lives. That's true, yes. It, it, we just have to figure out how to – interact. We have family members who are difficult, and, yeah. you know, all of this stuff. And so uh, helping uh, understand that, I think then we realize, okay, relationships are messy. Community is messy, but let's go ahead and and do the work to do it. Yeah, that's that's really good. A couple other things from this article at askaboutmyfaith.com, loving difficult people. They remind us Jesus died for hurting people. They remind us that difficult people are often overburdened. So perhaps we could go to that person. How can I help lift their burden? 
Um, challenging people are often under encouraged. We talk about this a lot, encouraging other people. And then the reminder that you and I have been saying this whole time, we are all difficult people. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things we need to learn yes. in this whole conversation. Amen. Amen. Well, coming up next, we're joined by a friend of the show, a ministry partner, and one of our teammates here on AM 1160, Michael Smith. He's a coach. He's a discipleship coach. He's got a new show coming out that we want to talk to you about. So be sure to stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled to be joined by a ministry partner and a teammate right here on AM 1160. That's Michael Smith. He's the president of Professional Coach University the lead pastor at Northwest Church in Mount Prospect, and the executive director of New Normal Coaching. And we are thrilled to talk to Michael about his professional coaching university and his new show, Your Discipleship Coach. It airs on Saturdays at 7 p.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. So put it in your calendars, mark it down. You will (laughs) not want to miss it. Michael, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much, Aubrey and Brian. It's my pleasure to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better? Sure, I can. This year, I am so excited to celebrate my 27th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I I actually have six children. My oldest is 23, adulting in Florida, and goes all the way down to a first grader. So Wow. It's my little way to be all things to all people that some might know him. (laughs) (laughs) You're just doing your part. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) yeah, that's, 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 that's my family. I serve as a professional coach. I'm a lead pastor and I, and just in in love with our Lord. No, that's That's awesome, awesome. man. That is quite, that is quite the the move from 23 down to first grade is, is quite the move there. Uh, as we said, uh, you've got a new show called Your Discipleship Coach, which airs Saturdays at 7 p.m. here on AM 1160. We'd love to just hear more about the show. Kind of what's the heartbeat for the show and what are you hoping that people will get as they tune in? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. The show is really designed to help people apply biblical truth in their everyday life. My my philosophy, even on discipleship and spiritual formation, is not to only know more, but to behave well before the Lord. So this entire mm. show is all about, about, you know, practical application of biblical truth. Oh, that sounds so fantastic, Michael. And I, I do want to talk more about your show, but I'm interested in your professional coach university and also mm. new normal coaching Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Professional Coach University is a coach education platform. I actually am the author of the Professional Coach Training Program, which is an International Coaching Federation approved pathway. So you could go through the program, whether you are a Christian in the workplace, wherever you are, and be hired as a professional coach in the hospital, in a bank, at a church, wherever that would be. And so that's our, our bread and butter is coach education. But Professional Coach University also delivers high quality uh, executive coaching. We work with churches, businesses, universities, things of that nature. And then New Normal Coaching is a charity where we help pastors and Christian leaders provide both free and low cost coaching to pastors and Christian leaders who either haven't prioritized that, it's not in their budget, and we actually hire certified coaches to work alongside of them. 
Mm. Uh, help people understand what coaching is. I think mm. we know that term from the sports world, right? Like we know what a coach does, right. but uh, what is the type of coaching you're discussing and why would it be beneficial for somebody to engage in coaching? This is one of my favorite questions that I have ever been asked, and I get this question a lot, but professional coaching, and I, I look at this from the context of spiritual coaching, it's it's all about discovery. It's about learning. It's about awareness. A lot of times, even in the professional space, coaching is about getting something done. It's mm-hmm. about doing things, and, and we want that to happen. There has to be a win and getting something done. But but coaching is also a, about more than than doing. It's about becoming. So that's mm. why this Christian space works hand in glove with coaching because as we become like Christ, as we it's not just about doing things or developing a habit per se, but it's about who we are becoming. So coaching is a process where I, as a coach, partner with someone to discover who they're becoming, to learn the the gaps in their life, and then to put an accountable action plan in place so they actually can strive to become who God has called them to be. Oh, that's so fantastic. Um, And Michael, just a really practical question. How can people get in touch with you if they want to maybe be coached by you or ask you more questions about coaching? So certainly, and it's tied with the show, yourdiscipleshipcoach.com would be a great place. All of the connections are there. But to learn more specifically about coach education or receiving coaching, uh, a listener can also find professionalcoachuniversity.com. So either one of those places. Uh, And Michael... Uh, so there might be, let me, let me think of somebody out there who's thinking to themselves, you know what? I don't have time to like do the introspective work of my life. I got job to do. <laughs> I got a family. And quite frankly, to kind of dig deep like that sounds a little intimidating, a little painful. Help them understand when we don't kind of do that work, what the results are and why something like coaching uh, can benefit us as we move forward. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of liken that to what I call the be still. Mm-hmm. principle of scripture. And, and, and that's where coaching, you know, I actually, there's a, a friend of mine, Tommy Barnett, he wrote a book called too busy not to pray. And I think <laughs> this is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and if our perspective is all undoing, we never become the man or woman God's called us to be the father or mother God's called us to be the pastor or the church attender or the depending on your job, whatever you do in the workplace, God's called us to not just do, but to become. And Mm -hmm. as we are like him, as we follow him, then we join his mission to share his love with the world. And that's, that's really the way that it's done. So really the benefit of coaching is having a partner that helps you slow down, Mm. And ask the right question. Mm. Discover what's next in your life. And it's really all about you as a person. So a a coach, what I do when I coach is I I champion you. I don't force Mm. you to do anything. I join you and celebrate what God does in your life. And um, Michael, let's go back to your show, which we're really excited about. Airs Saturdays at 7 p.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Again, it's called Your Discipleship Coach. What do you hope listeners get when they listen to your show? What I hope they get is in addition to good information, I hope they receive inspiration Mm -hmm. so they can Mm -hmm. actually 
you know, not not deceive themselves. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It says it like that in James. Don't just hear all the information. But but I love James four word four words of advice. The, and, and, you know, and this is talking about the word of God is to do what it says. And so what I hope people receive from listening to this show is the courage, the inspiration and a sense mm-hmm. of partnership to just do what the word says that that's the win of the show. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Again, Michael Smith is the president of Professional Coach University, the lead pastor of Northwest Church in Mount Prospect, and the executive director of New Normal Coaching. Michael, thanks so much for being here with us today. It's truly my privilege. Thanks for the invitation. Again, you can learn more about Michael and his show at yourdiscipleshipcoach.com and be sure to listen to Your Discipleship Coach on Saturdays at 7 p.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and it is the end of today's show. And at the end of every show, we love to bring you something inspiring, challenging, or just something to put a smile on your face. Brian, I found this story. You said you've actually heard of this story before, mm-hmm. but in in light of Valentine's Day, I thought this was really a good story to put a smile on people's face. This is a story about a guy who calls himself the Love Lock Savior. And you can find him on Instagram if you want to. But before we actually play some audio about his story, Brian, are you familiar in Paris with that uh, that gate of locks? That's probably not what you're supposed to call it. It has a more traditional name than that. But where people go to Paris and and like as a couple hang a lock on the on the gate there. No. And here's the deal. This is a somewhat of a humble brag. I've actually been to Paris twice in my life. And I I don't remember. It's right by the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. I, I, now, if I went back a bit, I got to go see this. I right. was not aware of this until I saw the story. But it's a cool tradition where people put these locks and kind of sign their name to it or, yes. you know. Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting, but I was unaware of it when I went there. Yeah, it's, it's it's all kinds of movies and shows. That's the only reason I know about it. But it's a it's a bridge that looks right at the Eiffel Tower, and people come with you know padlocks or heart shaped locks, and like you said, they write their names or their initials, and kind of this sign they're going to be there, going to be together forever. But Paris ended up taking down like over a million locks because, of course, they were afraid that the weight of the locks would cause the bridge to collapse, which is Mm. a very like thoughtful thing for them to do. So this um, guy who calls himself the love lock savior felt like, no, I cannot um, let these locks just go to waste or go to the garbage. And so he kind of made it his own mission to buy these locks, find these locks, and to get them back to the couples or the family members, which is Mm -hmm. so interesting. I want us to listen to a story that was on Good Morning America about him because I definitely think it'll put a smile on your face. When Gio and Janelle Fuente visited the City of Love back in 2015, they made sure to stop by the Pont des Arts. The two placing a love lock on the bridge, just like hundreds of thousands of couples before them. I love you, baby. I love you too, baby. So much love on that bridge, but just months later, the city of Paris had to take them down over fears the added weight could cause the bridge to collapse. I remember literally telling my mom one time, like, I hope ours survives somehow. Seeing that, Phileas, who collects a bunch of antique keys, realized some of those keys could open up antique locks. And at that time, I became the, um, the love lock saver. Phileas amassing stacks and stacks of locks in his attic... So this one says, will you marry me? 
Yeah. And among them, there was this one with the names Gio and Janelle Fuente. We were able to track them down in Florida. Gio surprising Janelle with an early Valentine's gift. <laughs> oh my gosh! How did that happen? I was in shock. I would have never expected to see that again. The two telling us they're celebrating 20 years together this year. I definitely think the lock was a beautiful thing. This gift is incredible, like you said, 20 years later. Phileas also discovering a very special lock in his stash. And at one time I was cleaning it and I saw Michelle and Barack, Love Forever. I searched on the internet and found that they went in Paris in 2009. And two Obama staffers who were on that Paris trip tell us they don't remember there being a time when the Obamas could have come here to put it up. So the story behind that lock, very much still a mystery. Okay, so I, Brian, this is wild to me. Like he didn't want all the love locks to go to the garbage. So he took the responsibility on and put like masses, a massive amount of locks mm-hmm. in his attic and he's been doing this for seven years, trying to get locks back to couples around the world. He's been in touch with couples as far as Australia. Again, you can go to his Instagram page. You can see pictures of some of the locks. And you know this has to really encourage the people who get their locks back, don't you think? Right. Oh, it's got to be. Uh, could you imagine? Because you probably don't even remember. Or maybe once you see it, you do remember. But it's this idea. If you got that in the mail, right, in the bo- in a box yeah. or whatever, and all yeah. of a sudden you're like, now you're getting flooded by these memories. You remember when we were there. Uh, I think this is a cool story. I, I like that this guy is doing it. Now, how you open up all these locks, I'm not 100% sure. Like, don't right. a lot of these require keys? And I think he talks about that. I think a lot of them are unable uh, to, to be, get out. Right, but, right. Uh, but he has found like 800 locks he was able to save. And the story is fascinating because later on, there is one that he saw that says Michelle and Barack love forever. Uh, and the Obamas were in Paris in 2009. No and so way. he doesn't know for sure that it's them. ABC reached out to the Obamas office, but they couldn't confirm the lock belonged to them. But they said that they would have been in Paris at about that time. So you're like, well, that's really cool. But I just love uh, these stories are heartwarming. I know. Aren't they great? We all have these moments, right? Somebody who you carve your initials in a tree, right? Or you and I went to Wheaton. There's a, there's a tradition. I don't know if you and Kevin did it, but Carrie and I did where you go up the tower when you're engaged. We went up the tower. You ring that bell, right? You ring the bell and you put something up there. And in theory, I don't know if they clean those out, but in theory, those things are still up there or on the wall or whatever. Uh, and it just floods these memories of like, oh, we were able to celebrate with people and we were able to look forward to being married. I don't know. Mm. When did you guys do that? We did ours on graduation weekend. When did you do yours? Oh, man, we did ours after we had graduated because we were engaged and Kevin's mom worked at Wheaton College. That's and right. It was very important to her that we go up the tower. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, like I've got a little bit of a cynical side. And so I was like, <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to go up the tower. And right. then. But we did it for her and she was very, very pleased. And now thinking about the fact that, you know, she passed away last October, I'm like, oh, okay, the least we could do was go up the tower for so, Pam. So in the moment, though, at, OK, you're cynical going into it, but then yes. you guys do it. Did yeah. you kind of roll your eyes at yeah. it and remain cynical? Because yes. I was like, this is awesome. No, I rolled my eyes and remained cynical. You're a bad cynical. person. I know I am. And then they, <laughs> this tells you how terrible I am. They post, you know, the Wheaton College newspaper, they tell you who went up the tower. That's right. 
I, and right. our names were in that. And I was like, I don't want our names in this. Like, I, I had a whole thing about it. I'm I'm kind of dark sometimes, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny because yeah. I, I had the exact opposite. You loved of it. Friends and family there. Oh, and it was I like, we have that. pictures. No, it was it was awesome. Oh, it was great. That's really, really sweet. Well, the, the Lovelock Savior, here's something that he says in this uh, story about him, which I think is really, really sweet. Um, besides celebrating romantic love, he found family locks, friend locks, and even some in memoriam engraved with the names of people who have passed. And he says mm. every kind of love has to be expressed. And here's what's interesting. The Lovelock Savior said what he'd like is to hear each one of these couple stories and share them with the world. And he said this. I just think the world needs love. Love is the mm. only thing that can save the world. And I, I thought that was such a beautiful expression, you know, for all of us. Brian, take a minute and be a pastor about that for our listeners as we close today's show. Uh, why is love so important? I mean, let's go back to scripture, right? Like we read in scripture that God is love. And we also yes. know that how we, we want people to come to faith. And what does the Bible tell us? It says they will know we are Christians by our love, yes. by how we treat, not necessarily what we say uh, or uh, or how, you know, but they'll know there we are Christians by how we treat them, how we care for them, how we love them. So if God is love and we are called to, then obviously the statement you're making that love is a, not just a feeling. It's not just a Valentine's Day thing. It's not desert. You know, we can get into the Greek of the different kinds right, of love, right. but, but that we are called to be at our core men and women who love people the way that Jesus has loved mm. us. And so if you look at your own life or your church or people around you and you see just, uh, you know, a lack of love, I would suggest that that is a lack of understanding of who we are called to be as Christ followers. So yes, you are a hundred percent right. Uh, we can, we can bask in the love of Christ in our lives. And then we are called to go show the love of Christ to other people. Yeah. Oh, so good, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for that word. And thanks everybody for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from four to 6 PM for Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson. And you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160 hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it and i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com